A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. On the Naked Astronomy podcast this month, the enormous size of Comet McNaught, the brightest comet in over 40 years with a tail that was over 225 million kilometres long, and the latest incarnation of Galaxy Zoo, how you can help to spot the weird and wonderful out in space, now using images from the Hubble Space Telescope. Hubble gives us 10 times greater resolution, and that means we can see details much further away. This is fantastic. To be able to look back in time is is amazing. You can't really ask for more than that. That's coming up later on, plus news of capturing pictures of lightning on Saturn, celebrating the Hubble Space Telescope's 25th birthday, and a suspected sighting of the first microquasar found outside our galaxy. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. And now we join our expert panel to catch up with the latest news in astronomy and cosmology. We'll be hearing from Carolyn Crawford, astronomer at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge, and from Andrew Ponson, who's from the Kavli Institute for Cosmology. But first, we speak to Dominic Ford, who works in the Cavendish Lab at Cambridge University, about the thunderstorm that's quite literally out of this world. Well, the Cassini spacecraft has caught the first pictures of lightning strikes in Saturn's atmosphere. Now, you might think it would be quite easy to photograph a thunderstorm on Saturn. After all, astronauts on the International Space Station have no trouble seeing lightning strikes on the unilluminated night side of the Earth. The problem on Saturn is its atmospheric clouds are pale-coloured and quite bright, and even on the planet's night side, so much sunlight is reflected off Saturn's rings that it never really gets very dark. If you think on Earth how bright it can be on a moonlit night, and then imagine instead of having the moon you have a whole sweeping ring system above you, you can begin to see how bright the Saturnian night sky must be. So up till now, the Cassini spacecraft has really been struggling to pick out lightning strikes against the bright background of the planet. But nonetheless, it's discovered some quite tantalising things about thunderstorms on Saturn. It can pick out the radio static which the storms cause. And from that, we can tell that Saturn has these monster thunderstorms that often go on for many months at a time and we also know that they're heavily concentrated in one particular region in the southern tropics which people call storm alley but late last year it eventually succeeded in capturing a storm on camera and it compiled a 16-minute video showing lightning bolts jumping 200 miles between clouds in in saturn's atmosphere now obviously it's very prettily it's nice to look at 
but it will also help us to pin down much more precisely the exact altitude where this lightning is happening and perhaps begin to understand why these storms last for so long and why they seem to be concentrated in this one part of Saturn's atmosphere. So is Saturn the first place other than Earth, of course, that we've actually seen lightning? We've certainly seen lightning strikes on Venus and Jupiter. We don't really understand the processes that lead to Charles build-up that lead to lightning strikes. So it's fascinating to begin to understand which planets have lightning and which don't. We also are celebrating an anniversary this month, Carolyn. Well, we couldn't let April go by without a mention that it's 20 years since the Hubble Space Telescope was launched. And just really to celebrate all the fantastic uh, results that have come from it, you know, from establishing things like the edge of the universe and the value of the Hubble constant, so that's the rate at which the universe is expanding, looking at some of the most distant galaxies in the universe through this iconic Hubble ultra-deep field, and also discovery of things like protoplanetary disks in the Iran Nebula. So fantastic images, fantastic results, lots of papers from it, and the best thing about it is just going from strength to strength after its last servicing mission last year. It's got this new camera that's bigger, it's more sensitive, it covers more wavelengths down into the infrared and up to the ultraviolet. And the first images we've seen from it that have been released over the last um, last few months have been fantastic. And hopefully it'll carry on for another five years or so and tide us over until the James Webb Space Telescope is launched. I think you used exactly a word that I would have used when you said that these images are iconic. And it spent 20 years now inspiring people, as well as doing great science. Just these images alone must inspire people to get into astronomy. Oh, I think that's very true. And we shouldn't underestimate just the sort of public communication benefit from these images and the data from this telescope. They've been fantastic. And they certainly make astronomy a very easy sell for all of us who are trying to communicate it. There can't be too many areas of science where your results also make incredible posters. Yes, unfortunately, some of us don't always just work on images. A lot of us work on spectra, which aren't quite so pretty. Dominic, coming back to you, one thing that we know that Hubble can't look at at the moment is, in fact, Venus, one of our nearby planets. But we have some more news about that. Venus is too close to the sun for the HST to be allowed to point at it. But the European Venus Express spacecraft, nonetheless, is orbiting Venus. And this month has picked out some really intriguing features on Venus's surface. Now, Venus's surface has a strange problem, which is all to do with the craters. Basically, there aren't enough of them. And the thousand or so that there are, are in almost pristine condition. You see minimal signs of weathering. They look like recent features. Now, that all suggests that Venus is very actively volcanic and that there are frequent lava flows which flood the old craters and wipe the slate clean so that you only see the new features. In particular, we think that 500 million years ago, there must have been some massive global resurfacing event where most of the planet's surface was completely flooded clean and you only see the craters which have formed since that time. Now, that all makes sense because we know there were a huge number of volcanoes on Venus, nearly 200 volcanoes at the size of Hawaii. But at that point, you hit a problem because Venus may have a lot of volcanoes, but they all appear to be dormant. In the last 30 years or so that we've been able to study the planet in detail, no one has ever found any signs of a current volcanic eruption, or even any recent volcanic eruptions. So that leads us to wonder whether perhaps we're not looking hard enough to see the eruptions, 
or whether for some reason Venus has gone quiet, just as we've got technology to look at it. Now, what Venus Express has added to this mystery is that it's picked up some interesting compositional differences in the rock around a volcanic mountain called Iden Mons, as compared to elsewhere on the planet. And that's exactly what you'd expect to see if the lava flows around that volcano hadn't finished oxidising in the atmosphere and had been below the surface comparatively recently. And geologists are saying that they think the rocks in question are definitely less than two and a half million years old, and perhaps much less still, perhaps only a few hundred years old. So perhaps we shouldn't be too quick in declaring Venus to be geologically dead, and we've still got some things to learn about how volcanoes work in the hot, dense atmosphere of Venus. So Hubble hasn't been able to see these interesting volcanoes on Venus, but it has been able to do some incredible high-resolution imaging of bits of the universe that we've never seen before. Andrew, this brings me back to you. There's something that's been in the news this month which centres around the so-called Cosmos Survey. Now, that's a survey of something like two square degrees of the sky, which we've discussed before, and it's taken with lots of different telescopes, actually, to get lots of uh, different data. But the absolute cornerstone of this survey are images taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, the news is that people have been looking at the effects in this picture of something known as weak lensing, which I'll explain in a second. And they've been able to confirm using that the existence of dark energy. Dark energy is this force that seems to be pushing the universe apart at an ever greater rate. And we think that in the future, detecting dark energy using weak lensing is going to be really important. But let's take a step back and discuss what weak lensing is. Uh, Weak lensing is, is the effect that light is just deflected. If you have a massive galaxy, the gravitational effect of that galaxy will deflect light as it goes past it. And why we call it weak is that we're referring to the distortion of background shapes. So if you imagine a really distant galaxy, then that has some particular shape that we would see it as. But as the light from that galaxy goes past other galaxies in the foreground, the shape gets distorted. And it's that distortion that we call weak lensing. It's very challenging technically to pick up these distortions in shape. Let me give you two reasons why it's technically challenging. First of all, uh, what shape were the background galaxies? If you want to know the the way that the shape's been distorted, ideally you'd like to know what shape it was originally. But of course you don't know that because you can only see it in the presence of this distortion effect. So you need to use clever statistical techniques to uh, work out what the effect of the distortion really is. And secondly, if you're looking for these slight changes in shapes, then any distortion in the images that's introduced by imperfections in the telescope is really going to mess up the signal that you're looking for. So you have to really understand exactly what the optics in your telescope are doing to those images. Now, the reason that you can detect dark energy using this weak lensing effect comes about because galaxies grow in a slightly different way uh, according to the way that dark energy takes over the dynamics of the universe as a whole. Uh, And also, it just affects how far away a typical galaxy is because everything is being pushed apart at an increasing rate. So on the one hand, it's really reassuring that this new study has found that dark energy is definitely there by looking at weak lensing 
But at the moment, if you look at the actual results, the constraints on how much dark energy is there and what the actual nature of that dark energy force is are uh, really not very strong at all. All we've really detected is that there is some effect there. But other techniques like looking at the cosmic microwave background radiation are currently giving us much stronger constraints on exactly what that dark energy is doing. So it's reassuring that we've detected it, but in some sense it's, it's also worrying for the future because it really shows the challenges that are ahead if we want to take full advantage of these kind of effects. So now moving on to observations taken with another space telescope, not the Hubble this time. Carolyn, we have some ideas about neutron stars. Yeah, this is some data taken over the last decade using the Chandra Space Telescope, which works in the X-ray wave band, where astronomers have been monitoring a neutron star and just measuring its luminosity and temperature all as well. Now, this may seem a strange thing to do, but if you have a neutron star... It's the endpoint of a massive star's life when it's run out of fuel. It's blown off the outer layers in a supernova explosion and the centre collapses down to form a neutron stars where you squish the neutrons together until they resist the inward pull of gravity and you're left with this very compact, super dense object. So it's very easy to see the supernova explosions, very rare events, but you have matter at uh, millions, billions of degrees and you expect to start off with a super hot neutron star at well over a billion degrees and we also see lots of very old neutron stars at temperatures of about a million couple of million degrees but how you move from one point to the other is less well determined how do the neutron stars cool down what are the processes involved and so the astronomers have been looking at the youngest known neutron star that's in the supernova remnant of Cassiopeia A which exploded in 1680 or thereabouts so this star's over 300 years old and it's been cooling. They've measured a rate, it's had a temperature drop of only about 3% over the last decade. But trying to monitor what the rate of cooling is depends on what's causing the cooling and the general thought of it sort of high energy neutrinos which are emitted right deep in the core of the star. But it's always possible that there are other sort of exotic states of matter within the star. So it just gives some handle to compare to models for the internal structure of neutron stars. And these models make predictions about whether the core cools more quickly than the outer layers of the star or whether they all cool at a uniform rate. And that makes predictions about the temperature drop, which they can compare to the observations. Now, one interesting way that we can observe neutron stars is by looking for things called microquasars. Andrew, what are these and what do we know about them? Well, a microquasar is literally, as the name suggests, it's a small version of a quasar. And a quasar is a very bright object that's powered from very hot gas falling in towards a massive black hole. And we see those throughout the universe, all the way out to, to the edges of what we can see. So in the case of a microquasar, it's a similar set of physics that's operating. But instead of going onto a really massive black hole, the material is falling in towards either a relatively small black hole or indeed a, a neutron star. But the same heating of that material goes on and for that reason we can see it very brightly. Because they're much smaller, microquasars so far have actually been seen only in our own galaxy and generally what you see are short-lived bright flares and we've seen around a dozen of those in our own galaxy 
And we've never actually observed one, as far as we know, outside our own galaxy. But there was an interesting announcement at the National Astronomy Meeting by Tom Muxlow, who works at Jodrell Bank in Manchester. Now, he's part of a group that monitors the galaxy known as M82, sometimes better known as the Cigar Galaxy. It's monitored quite often because it has a very high star formation rate. It's creating stars at a prodigious rate, and as a result of that, all sorts of interesting physics are going on inside. In particular, you see supernovae going off every 15 to 30 years or so. But in May 2009, this group who were monitoring a particular supernovae saw nearby a new source of radio emission just appear. And at first, they really didn't know what it was at all, and they monitored it for a little bit longer. And they realised that it was moving extremely fast, most likely at a very significant fraction of the speed of light. And that's not really consistent with it being, say, a new supernovae. So this group have gone through a number of different possibilities for the cause of that emission. And they've come to the conclusion that the most likely explanation is that this is a microquasar going off in M82. So the very first microquasar seen outside our own galaxy. Now, it's slightly tenuous because it doesn't have exactly the same properties as microquasars in our own galaxy. But nonetheless, it's intriguing and they're going to carry on monitoring it. So we'll watch with interest to see what this object really is. So, microquasar or not, a really interesting object spotted in a nearby galaxy. That was Andrew Ponson and before him, Carolyn Crawford and Dominic Ford with a roundup of space science news. They'll be back later on to take on your questions. Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this program, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Still to come, we find out how you can help to identify galaxies from images taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. That's in the latest version of Galaxy Zoo. But first, back in 2007, the Ulysses spacecraft, during a mission to study the solar wind, was fortunate enough to be caught in the tail of matter streaming from Comet McNaught. Geraint Jones of UCL's Millard Space Science Laboratory explains how this gave Ulysses an unprecedented view of this incredible comet. Well, Comet McNaught was huge. It was a, it was a really pleasant surprise in uh, early 2007, January and February 2007. It was a spectacular comet. Unfortunately for us in the Northern Hemisphere, the Southern Hemisphere population got the best view. So uh, after it passed closest to the sun in the middle of January, it moved to the southern skies and they saw this enormous dust tail stretching across uh, a large part of the sky. And it was the brightest comet for 40 years. So not an insignificant thing to see? No, not at all. And actually it was, uh, it was briefly visible in daylight when it was close to the sun for a few days. If you had a really clear sky, it was spectacular. You managed to take advantage of a, a couple of things happening. Not only did we have spacecraft that went through the tail of the comet, but also you used a fairly unusual technique for actually measuring how big it was. First of all, what did we learn from going through the tail? All comets, like the Earth, are sitting in the solar wind, and this is this flow of very fast ionised gas. So this is gas where all the electrons have been stripped off the atoms that's flowing out from the sun continuously. It's between 300 and 800 kilometres per second, which is incredibly fast. So it, we're sitting in this flow of solar wind, and we're protected from this by the Earth's magnetic field, which prevents it from hitting our upper atmosphere. But uh, the comets, when they're close to the sun, 
the core of a comet is basically a dirty snowball a few kilometres across. When it gets close to the sun, it gives off lots of gas and dust. And the gas that's given off, it's sitting in, in bright sunlight, and that gets ionised as well, and it joins the solar wind. So it's a bit like adding paint to a flow in a river, and this ionised gas glows, and that's how we can see an iron tail and a dust tail, which is just from reflected sunlight. So iron tails, they, they basically show how the comet's interacting with this flow of gas coming out from the sun. Now, uh, the Ulysses spacecraft was an uh, incredibly successful uh, joint European and NASA mission that was sent to, to study the solar wind. And um, the Earth just goes around the, the sun's equator, and Ulysses went in an orbit that took it over the poles of the sun, but it took about five years or so to go around once. And it, fortunately, was in the right place at the right time for Comet McNaught to pass between it and the Sun. And so this tail was carried out with the solar wind, and um, several days after it left the comet's head, it, it reached Ulysses, where it was detected by the instruments on board. So how long is the tail of ions compared to the tail that we actually see, the, the dusty ice tail? You can see both, but um, generally the dust tail is easier to see. And it was definitely the case in, in McNaught. It was, uh, the dust tail was enormous and comparable to the distance between the Earth and the Sun in length. So that was sizable in itself. But the iron tail, uh, Ulysses at the time, was over twice the distance from the Sun to the Earth. And the comet was just over half the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So it was one and a half times at least the distance between the Earth and the Sun in length. And uh, the Sun-Earth distance is 150 million kilometres. So we knew it was very long to begin with. It doesn't hold the record for the longest measured tail. That's another comet that Ulysses crossed in 1996 called Comet Hakutaku, which is over three and a half times the distance between the Sun and the Earth. So with Comet McNaught, we knew we'd cross the tail of that as well. And like a, a ship sitting in a river, comets sitting in the solar wind form a bow wave around them. So you have a region of, of solar wind which is disturbed around the comet. And the size of that disturbance gives a, a very good indication of how big an obstacle the comet was to the solar wind. At this other comet, Hakutake, we saw these structures that, that looked like they could be bow waves on either side of the comet, but we weren't sure. But then when we looked at uh, the data from Comet McNaught, uh, it turned out that it took 18 days between crossing the bow wave inbound and the bow wave outbound. So it, it turned out to be an enormous structure. So this was how you actually measured the size of it. What instruments do you need to pick up this wave in the solar wind? Well, Ulysses doesn't carry any cameras, but it was equipped with a range of instruments to detect the ions in the solar wind and also this magnetic field of the sun which is carried out with an instrument called a magnetometer. So it's a bit like a compass, but it also tells you the strength of the magnetic field. So it tells you which way it's pointing and uh, the strength of it. And when spacecraft have been sent to comets like Comet Halley, much closer to the head of a comet, they've seen the bow shock or bow wave very clearly. You see the plasma slowing down. The plasma is the solar wind flow. That slows down, and also the, the strength of the magnetic field jumps up. So that was the sort of signature we were looking for um, at McNaught. So the magnetometer on Ulysses provided the clear indication that, uh, that we had actually crossed the bow wave. So it was a sudden jump up in magnetic field strength on one side and then when we came out on the other side it dropped back down again. 
Does this have any implications for our understanding of how the Earth's magnetic field and the Earth itself react to the solar wind? If we know that things like comets are going through, adding their own ions and, and tweaking the magnetic field, is it likely to have an effect on us? Well, the Earth's magnetosphere, this, this sort of cage that protects the Earth from the solar wind, is a little different to the comet's magnetospheres. But I think what we're learning by studying the data sent back by Ulysses and other spacecraft is how the solar wind interacts with comets. Comet McNaught was at an extreme end of the, the size scale. It was a really big, active comet. But also we've got lots of much smaller objects circling the sun, which we could probably never detect because they're too small. And we know there's a huge cloud of dust orbiting the sun, and this dust is always giving off different particles, and they join the solar wind. So it is telling us a lot about how the solar wind interacts with all this material that's uh, going around the sun with the Earth and the other planets. Geraint Jones explaining how comets, such as Comet McNaught, seen in 2007, contribute to the solar wind. If you want to get involved with astronomical research, but don't have much time or resources, then Galaxy Zoo might be just the thing for you. All you need is a computer with an internet connection, and you can start to search for the secrets of the universe, as Chris Lintot explained. Well, it's a solution to an everyday problem, the kind of thing that we all face, which is when you get up in the morning and you have too many galaxies. In fact, we had a million galaxies which had been imaged with a robotic telescope, and we wanted to sort them out according to their shape to find out whether they were spiral or whether they were just big balls of stars called ellipticals. And actually, and strangely, it's the human eye that's best at doing this, much better than a computer. And so with a million galaxies, we needed some help. And so we created this website, galaxyzoo.org, to invite people to come in and help us sort through our galaxies. And what was the take-up like? Did you get lots of people willing to do your work for you? Yeah, the, the famous story is that the server which supplied the site caught fire within a couple of hours of the launch. Um, but we recovered, and in, what, two and a half and a bit years now, we've had 270,000 people take part. So it's this, this enormous groundswell of people who want to contribute to science. But that doesn't mean the work's done. We have plenty more galaxies and every single person who comes and spends even two minutes on the site, that improves our results and it improves our classifications. So we do still need help. So what are these people actually telling you? By categorising things by shape, what can you learn from that? Well, shape is a, a shorthand for all sorts of things about the galaxy's history. So it turns out that the shape of the galaxy tells you about its star formation, tells you about what encounters it's had with other galaxies in the past. It's related to where the galaxy lives in the universe. Ellipticals tend to be sociable animals and live in the middle of clusters. Spirals live elsewhere. And so by, by getting the shape, we can then unravel the history of each individual galaxy, but also of galaxy formation as a whole. And the goal of all of this is to try and explain why we got the universe we ended up with. Why does it look the way it does? Why is the Milky Way the way it is? How common's the Milky Way? And really, what ingredients do you put into a recipe if you want to turn out with this very pleasant, beautiful universe that we live in? Opening things up to the public on the internet is a, a wonderful way. Lots of other people are doing similar things with computer downtime, like SETI at home, for example. But it does also open you up to people being a bit cheeky or being downright vandals. How do you get around that? Well, this is where, you know, just in the same way that I walk down the street and I can get on a bus and I don't get mugged, primarily because most people are nice. 
right, even in Glasgow. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Never mind. No, you could leave that in. I might as well get the lynching I deserve. But normally, most people are nice. And so it's the same on the net. If 50 people look at, look at a galaxy, you know, you may deliberately misclassify it, but the other 49 won't. And so it evens out. It also corrects for mistakes. It's one of the advantages of having the public do this, is I could have forced some poor student to look at all million galaxies, but he will make he or she will make mistakes. Between us, we don't. And so the results we get are actually better than those you'd get doing this the traditional way. And there's another catch as well, which is that people are brilliant at spotting the weird and the wonderful and the unusual. So as well as classifying the galaxies, users, uh, volunteers have found all sorts of things. I mean, from the silly, there's a great galaxy that looks like a penguin, which is a particular favourite of mine, to things that are really, really interesting. There's an object which is now known as Hanny's Vaverp, and Vaverp is Dutch for thingy or object, which the Hubble Space Telescope has just taken images of because it was spotted by this Dutch school teacher, Hanny van Arkel, who thought it was interesting. And so we get all of that for free as well, and you'd never get that from a computer. So people do get to hear about how their contributions have worked out, how, how it's helped. Yeah, we take this very seriously, because they're our collaborators. So in the same way that I email Bob Nicol at the University of Portsmouth and say, actually, you know, the results are this, and in the same way we publish papers for our colleagues, we report back to our volunteers via our blog, mostly. And we try and, and tell them about the science that we're doing. Sometimes that's interesting, because not everything is the clear-cut results you're used to hearing about in the press so we've got this brilliant paper that's just come out even if i do say so myself which is the first results from galaxy zoo 2 and zoo 2 asked for more detailed classifications of each of the galaxies and this paper talks about the circumstances in which you have a bar at the center of the galaxy instead of just the spiral arms going all the way into the center and because we've got loads of these we can see for the first time that it's red galaxies, either ellipticals but also the spirals that have these bars. And so that's thrilling because we didn't know that before. But what it means, I don't have the foggiest. And so actually one of the refreshing things is treating our, our volunteers like collaborators and saying actually this is as far as we've got and now we're going to do these other things. But you know letting them in on the process. So I think what Galaxy Zoo does is it completely lowers the barrier of entry to be a professional scientist. Right, So you can sit in front of your computer, read a tutorial, within a couple of minutes you're actually doing something that will in a small way change what we know about the universe. And that's a feeling that you know, it took the rest of us seven years of, of hard-fought education to get to. But no, now there's something that people could do. and that, That's wonderful, I think. There's something really nice about that. And so what's the next step for Galaxy Zoo? Well, just a few weeks ago, we finished off our old set of galaxies, and it's a bit of an emotional moment, because from the beginning, we've always used galaxies from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey in New Mexico, and now we're moving on. We're going to use galaxies from Hubble. In fact, we're going to use something like 30,000 galaxies that have been captured by Hubble as part of its big surveys. And this will allow us to go deeper into the universe than ever before. We're actually going to look back in time and see how the universe of a few billion years ago compares to the one we've got now. And that will give us a huge amount of understanding about the processes that led to our everyday universe. Things like how important the process of merging galaxies are. We see these spectacular collisions, but do they actually have an effect? on the population? Until we know how many mergers there are back there, we can't answer that question. And so if you log on to galaxyzoo.org right now, the odds are you will see galaxies that no human has ever seen before. 
So you better be quick because people will be rushing to the site. If you want to be the first to see something or to discover something, this is the moment. So in the first couple of iterations of Galaxy Zoo, you had a million galaxies from the Sloan Sky Survey and you asked people to identify them based on their shape. Is it the same thing again now, just with a better resolution? Uh, Pretty much. Hubble gives us ten times greater resolution, and that means we can see details much further away. So it's exactly the same task, answer simple questions. How many spiral arms are there? Is there a bulge at the centre? We had to change it a little because it turns out that we suspect that there's a new type of galaxy, a sort of clumpy, irregular mess of stars that's more common back then than it is today. So there's a new set of questions if you happen to find one of those. But basically it's the same task, and that's deliberate because we want to compare the results we get from this project with the 160 million classifications or so that we've got from Galaxy Zoo to date. So this is fantastic. To be able to look back in time is, is amazing. You can't really ask for more than that. Chris Lintot on the latest incarnation of Galaxy Zoo using images from the Hubble Space Telescope. This is Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. If you've got any questions or comments for us, then do get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But now we return to Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic to take on your space science questions. We'll go to Dominic first to tackle John Stafford's excellent question. What time is it on the moon? When we ask what time is it, what we're really asking is where is the sun in the sky? And if the sun has just risen and it's in the east, then we say it's the morning and we should get up and go to work. And if the sun is setting in the west, then we say it's evening. Now, on the earth, where the sun appears in the sky depends exactly where you are, because the earth is curved and what you see as being vertically above you changes from one place to another. The so-called local time that your wristwatch measures is tuned to the hours of daylight in the particular place where you happen to be rather than being a particularly scientific measure of exactly how much time has passed. And when scientists are doing experiments where they really need to know exactly when an experiment was done, they tend to talk in terms of a so-called universal time, which is the same everywhere and is a true measure of how many seconds have elapsed. Now on the Moon, local time is rather different from on the Earth, because the Moon orbits the Earth once a month, And it's tidally locked to the Earth, which means it rotates on x-axis once a month every 28 days. And that means that the sun appears to go round the sky once every 28 days. And you have 14 days of daylight, followed by another 14 days of night time. If you take the landing site of Apollo 15, for example, and I choose it because it's pretty much bang in the middle of the moon if you look up at the face of the moon, Sunrise happens at first quarter, a week after new moon. Noon happens a week later when the moon is full. And sunset happens at last quarter, a week before the next new moon. And that long lunar day was tremendously useful for the Apollo astronauts who could stay on the moon for several Earth days without being exposed to the tremendously cold lunar night. And give them time to get plenty of work done while they're there, of course. Carolyn, we've had a question from Vince that maybe you can help with. Basically, he's asked if telescopes look back in time. Yes, is the short answer to that. When we look at objects at greater and greater distances, we are effectively looking back in time. And this is all due to the fact that light travels at a finite speed, 300,000 kilometres per second. 
And while this doesn't make much difference to us here on the Earth, as soon as you get to the kind of distance scales we have in astronomy, the time taken for light to travel across those distances becomes appreciable. And the light from the sun, which is only 150 million kilometres away, takes eight and a half minutes to reach us. So astronomers use light years as a measure of distance. I know it sounds like it should be a measure of time, but this is nine and a half million million kilometres, and it's how far light travels in a year. So yes, if you're observing, say, the Earth from 100 light years away, you're seeing the Earth as it was 100 years ago. But this is a great tool for astronomers. When we look at galaxies in space, it is important for us to know how far away they are because then we can see more or less when they are and we can place the observation of that galaxy in the context of where it is in the history of the universe. And we can be observing galaxies that are 10 million light years away. We're seeing them as they were 10 million years ago. But some of the deepest optical pictures go back to telescopes that are back to when the universe was like a tenth of its present age. And so we can see what the universe was like then. So it's a very clever way for us to explore the universe in time as well as in space. So it means that we can look at events that take millions of years to happen, but because we can look at the same event in a number of different galaxies that are different distances away, we can build a timeline without ever actually having to watch it happen. That's exactly right, because things happen on astronomical timescales that are so huge compared to our human lifespan. We can't wait for things to happen. But by being able to sample enough objects at all the different stages, you're right, we can join the dots and kind of work out what happens. Excellent. Andrew, we've had a question here that I think probably fits you quite well from Howard Thomas. He says, if nothing can escape a black hole due to its gravity, then how can the gravity itself escape? Well, actually, that's a, it's a really good question because we're used to thinking about black holes as, as you say, being something that, that nothing can escape. And the reason that nothing can escape is essentially because nothing can go fast enough to get out, unlike the Earth, where if you launch a rocket fast enough, it does get away from the Earth's gravitational field. The, um, in, in a black hole, nothing can go fast enough, including light. Now, in Einstein's theory of gravity, general relativity, gravitational effects do, in fact, at some sense, travel at the speed of light. So it's not unreasonable to suggest if you drop some extra mass, say, into a black hole, that once it's inside the black hole, you should stop feeling the effects of that because the gravitational effects shouldn't get out. Now, there's a complex issue here about exactly what is travelling when you talk about the gravitational field in this way. But we can actually skip over that because there's a way of understanding why you do keep feeling these gravitational effects anyway. And that is that if you watch something fall towards a black hole, so you take any old object and you throw it towards a black hole, you never actually see it cross what we call the event horizon. That's like the surface of the black hole. It's the point of no return where really nothing can get out. Instead, what you see from outside is that object gets slower and slower and dimmer and dimmer, but it never actually reaches the black hole itself. It's to do with the distortion of time uh, around a black hole that's predicted by Einstein's theory. So from an outsider's perspective, instead of things falling in, things kind of get stuck to the surface of a black hole. So from the outside, as far as we're concerned, all the matter in a black hole is in some sense stuck to its surface, so there's actually no reason to stop feeling its gravity. 
Thanks, Andrew. Earlier on, we were hearing about the enormous size of Comic McNaught, and we have a question here from Mark that uh, I think I'll put to you, Carolyn. He wants to know if comets themselves actually get smaller as they travel through space, giving off this material. Well, the answer is, again, yes. The, the interesting thing about comets is they come right from the outer reaches of the solar system, some from the Kuiper Belt, which is where Pluto is, and that's about 40 times further than the Earth is from the Sun. But there's this huge cloud of comets out 40 to 50,000 times further than the Earth is from the Sun, all orbiting the solar system. And a comet, when it's out in the, the deep recesses of the solar system, it's like a misshapen lump. It's maybe a few kilometers across. It's a collection of frozen ices. And it's not just water ice. It's also things like carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, ammonia ices, along with various sort of dust particles. It's kind of silicate material. So when the comets are out in this, it's called the Oort cloud, they don't show any behaviour, they just sort of sit there. But every so often there'll be a sort of gravitational perturbation that will send one tumbling towards the sun. And as it heats up, those frozen gases sublimate as the comet gets warmer. That means they go straight from being a solid to a gas and they stream off to form these fantastic tails like the one we were talking about with Comet McNaught. The gases are escaping through fissures within the nucleus, but all the while matter is leaving the cometary nucleus. And every time a comet goes past the sun, it evaporates an awful lot of its mass away. It could be up to about 1% of its mass every time it goes past the sun. So a comet that's going on a regular orbit that takes it past the sun, within about 100 orbits or so, the whole comet evaporates and you maybe just get this little trail of dust and pebbles left in its wake. So comets, once they reach the sun and the inner solar system, are actually very short-lived systems. Certainly astronomically speaking, they may only live a few thousand, a few tens of thousand years compared to the whole lifetime of the solar system, which is over four billion years old. So this is one argument that you do have constant replenishment of new comets from this Oort cloud, and that's why we still see them today. Thank you, Carolyn. Dominic, this almost seems a related question because we're talking about looking at things moving out in space. But we've had a question from Graham Wharton who says that we see lots of incredible still images of space, but we rarely see any video. Why is that? It's related to the fact that astronomical objects are so incredibly big. Big things tend to take longer as compared to small things to change. A simple example would be the difference between a violin and a trello, which are very similar but the cello is bigger, and because of that it vibrates at half the frequency. That's a couple of hundred times a second. Now, if you scale things up massively to the Earth's orbit, which is 300 million kilometres across, it takes a year for the Earth to orbit around the Sun, and you'd need to watch it for weeks to really see much appreciable movement around the Sun. But even the Earth's orbit is really quite small, astronomically speaking. If you were to put an Earth-like planet in an orbit around a nearby star, the orbit would appear so small on the sky that no telescope yet built could observe that planet. And of course that's a very topical issue because people are trying to build exactly such a telescope to observe exoplanets. If you take the sorts of objects that astronomers can routinely observe, let's say globular star clusters, those are around a million times larger still than the Earth's orbit. That's a few hundred million million kilometres across. They change on timescales of hundreds of millions of years. And going up to galaxies, those are another few thousand times bigger than globular star clusters, and they take around 250 million years 
orbit about their centres. So in the whole history of human civilization, the galaxies that we see on the sky have barely moved at all. Having said that, you do occasionally hear of objects that do change on quite short timescales. Examples would be supernovae, which appear on the sky in a matter of hours, and pulsars that can flash on and off hundreds of times a second. And objects like those usually turn out to be really fascinating because they must be very small in order to change so very quickly, but also very powerful to be bright enough that we can see them across cosmological distances. So when we do see what appear to be moving images, say that NASA have released of a meteor moving around or something like that, how are those actually put together? Well, there are some objects that you can see change over a period of, say, 30 years. For example, supernova remnants, which are expanding out from the supernova explosion, or nearby stars, which are flying past the sun, and which may move a very small amount over a course of decades. And what you can do with these objects is you can take old observations from a few years ago and blink those with more modern observations and compare the two and see what's changed. Thanks, Dominic. Andrew, coming back to you, we have a question that lots of people have asked us, but the the two most recent ones, one from Kevin Moran and one from someone called Stephen, who asked very similar questions. Basically, we know the universe is expanding, but what is it expanding into? Well, the key to understanding some of the issues surrounding these kinds of questions is first of all to appreciate that what we have that tells us about how the universe works is essentially a mathematical model. It's built largely on Einstein's general relativity, which describes the large-scale structure of the universe. But because it's just a model, often when you come to ask these kind of intuitive questions, you don't get quite as clear-cut an answer as you'd like. Let me give you one way to, to think about why this question doesn't really have any answer at all. And that's that there is another way of interpreting our model which makes it look completely different. And if you just take a piece of paper and draw some galaxies on that piece of paper at a certain distance and pretend for a moment that that represents the whole universe, and then you're going to give people living in your universe on a sheet of paper different ways to measure the distance between galaxies. And first of all, you give them a ruler that measures distances in inches. And they measure the distance to the nearest galaxy to be, I don't know, two units. And then a few billion years later, you come back to your paper universe and you give them a ruler that's actually marked out in centimetres. And then, of course, they find that it's now something like five units We can see from outside that universe that what's happened is that the way things have been measured is actually changing over time, that there's a kind of scale factor in this universe, that the distances haven't changed from an external perspective, but from inside it looks like they have because we're forced into measuring things in a particular way. And that's one way of understanding why our own universe is expanding. In fact, you can think of things as laid out in this very static way, but the way that physics is put together, the actual tools it gives us, makes it look like the distances are getting larger. So that's one perfectly mathematically consistent way of understanding the apparent expansion of our universe, which doesn't involve those galaxies expanding into anything because they're just fixed on a sheet of paper. But as I say, 
all of this comes back to really understanding the, the maths accurately. And there are different ways to go about interpreting what that really means. And there are interesting answers to, in fact, what's outside our own universe, which in some sense is answering the question of, you know, what's outside the, the region that's expanding from the Big Bang. In particular, uh, a theory that's very interesting at the moment is something called eternal inflation, where the entirety of everything there is, is known as the multiverse. Our universe is just some very small pocket inside that. And outside of our own universe, there's a vastly bigger region, which itself is in some sense expanding, and there are other universes popping up in that. And so you can, again, reinterpret things and saying that in some sense, our own universe is expanding out into that multiverse. But as I say, I think the, the key thing is that there are lots of different ways of answering that question. So what is it that causes us to accept or reject the different theories as to how to actually go about answering that? In the end, any scientific theory stands or falls by whether it makes the right predictions for what we can actually go and measure. And unfortunately, with these kind of issues, you know, we have one mathematical framework, and that is the thing that actually predicts what you'll measure and lots of different ways of interpreting it. And so, in a sense, there's no way to choose between those different interpretations. What might happen in the future is that those interpretations lead us on to new, different mathematical theories. But at the present moment, there's just not any way to answer these kind of questions. Thanks, Andrew. That was Andrew Ponson answering your space science questions with Dominic Ford and Carolyn Crawford. If you've got something for the panel to tackle, then do get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But that's all we have for this Naked Astronomy podcast. We'll be back soon with more space science news, interviews and questions. If you'd like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, just search for us on iTunes or join us at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists, and it comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council. 